0: on 69 on my peababble and probably on yours too. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good to me, also to me to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Well, welcome all. Good to see you all here this evening. We are in the uh, second of our series on these big questions, our Dear God series. Questions to God: How do we know He exists? That was last week. Tonight we'll be tackling this question: Why should I believe the Bible? Why should I believe the Bible? It's a big question, isn't it? It's an important question, so many hold it dearly. Why should we believe the Bible? What do you think? Now, whether you are a Christian or not, you do have to ask yourself, why would you place your whole life, your whole trust in this book? Why would you do that? Why would any sane human being place priorities on their life based on this book, shaped a whole life on this book. I mean, this is a book written by about 40 different authors, covers um, 66 books, written over a period of about 1500 years. What will you place your trust in such a book? So diverse in its genre, so long in its period, so different in its authors. How can you, Christian or not, place your trust in a book. And so our question for tonight, dear God, why should I believe in this book? Why should I, an individual with my own mind, with my own brain, allow this black book dictate how I live my life? Why should I submit to what was written so long ago by people I don't know from a bar of soap? Why should I do that? Why would you do that? It's an important question because Christians do do that. Why do you do that? We're autonomous beings. We've got our own mind, our own consciousness. We are the master of our fate, aren't we? We're the captain of our soul. That's what we're taught. I decide how to live. Why should I let that book dictate how I live? Now, I remember a time when I was a teenager. At that time I was a Christian already and I remember trying to defend the Bible to say, well, we believe this, it's true. And I still remember this one exchange. The person really said to me those questions. I I don't need a book to tell me how I'm meant to live. That's just childish, that's just immature. Why do you need that? Don't you have your own brain? And this guy was challenging me in that way. Now, I remember back then I, I gave some really long answer wasn't sure how convincing it was, perhaps it wasn't very convincing at all. But tonight there are those of you here who love the Bible, who submit to it. How would you answer that question? Why do you believe the Bible? And for those of you who are exploring, why would anyone believe a book? Well, how would you answer that? Well, people have given all sorts of answers. One of the common one, the big one, an important one, is I believe in the Bible, I believe the Bible is true because the Bible says so. Have you heard that argument before? I believe the Bible because the Bible says so. I believe the Bible is true because it is the Word of God. But then if that's how we go about thinking about the Bible and defending it in the Bible, who told you that it is the Word of God? And if someone else told you to believe in that book, shouldn't you believe that someone else who seems to be in a high authority? You know, how do you answer that question? How do you defend believing in the Bible? You see, when people say, I believe in the Bible because the Bible says so, or I believe in the Bible because it is the Word of God, what is that doing there? If you think about it, it's a circular argument. It's using the Bible to defend itself. It's what we call a circular argument. You know, using the Bible to affirm its own claims, the Bible is affirming its own authority. It's a circular argument and if you talk to philosophers or uh, students of philosophy, they say that doesn't work. It's a fallacy. You can't use that argument. You know, It's a bit like me saying to Yvonne, I'm the best husband there is and she asks me, how do you know that? And I say to her, well, just because I said so, I'm the best husband there is. It's a circular argument. It just doesn't work. But often that is how Christians defend the Bible. The Bible is true because the Bible says so. The Bible is true because it is the Word of God, but how do you know so? And so what can we do? How are we meant to go about defending the Bible, understanding it? How is it that Christians can believe in it? Well, you see, for so many people it's just inconceivable that a book can make such a claim about itself, make this circular argument about itself and then expect everyone to submit to it. And so have you heard that argument before? Have you used that argument before? That circular argument. I believe the Bible verse, the Bible have told me so. I believe it's true because it's the word of God. That's a circular argument. Well, how do you respond to that? Well, the way you respond to that, firstly, I think, is to acknowledge it is a circular argument and it has to be a circular argument. It has to be circular. You see, if the words of the Bible are in fact the words of God, the highest authority there is then it has to be circular in its declaration. It just has to be. Do you understand what I'm saying there? If there is another authority above the Bible that says you believe in the Bible, well, in a sense you're believing that higher authority and then it's not the Bible affirming itself anymore. And so, in one sense, it has to be circular. The Bible has to be circular if it is the Word of God and if it is the highest authority there is. So, On on first offence you can say, well, in in a sense it has to be circular. It can't be any other way. And so if you take this premise then that the Bible is the word of God, that it has to be circular, that God is self-affirming of his own authority, his own place, his own words in Revelation, in the Bible, recorded in the Bible, then it just has to be that way. If you accept that, then you can move on. And how do you do that? Well, what you can do next is you can think about if it's circular, how do you get onto that circle? How do you actually get onto understanding the Bible as a circular thing? Well, the way to do that, I think, there is a way and the way to do that is to enter through some tangible historical account of a particular person. You enter into this circular debate, this circular argument by entering through the tangible historical account of Jesus. And he said, when we talk about the historical Jesus, we're now no longer talking about this circular argument. We're talking about something that is tangible in history, a historical account. He said, when we talk about the historical Jesus, we're not talking about just an idea or a philosophy. We're now talking about a real person in human history who walked on earth in Palestine, who ate, who slept, who taught, who performed amazing miracles, who was witnessed by many, who died under Pontius Pilate, who claimed to have risen from the dead. You see, when you think about uh, this tangible historical account, they're historical events. We're not using the Bible to defend itself now. We're looking linearly through history, through human history. Now, you see how that is, in a sense, a good way to begin. When you begin with history, what happens is that when you talk about Christianity this way, you're actually saying forget thinking about what you believe. Forget thinking about uh, what you need to have faith in just yet. Forget thinking about religion for a moment. Just think about this historical account. What has happened in history? You see, when you begin with history, what that means is that like any other historical account in human history, you can scrutinise it. We're not saying to someone, well, I believe in the Bible, because the Bible told me so. Now I'm saying, you you see, what, what we can see here is that there is a person who lived in human history and when you understand that, you can now scrutinise history. You can interrogate it. Did that event happen or not? Did it happen as recorded? Are the records that we have now accurate? And so you can validate it if it's historical. You can verify it if it's historical. If you can't verify it, then what you can do with the Bible is you actually you can throw it away in the bin like rubbish. You see, in the Christian faith, it is unique, unique amongst the world's religion in that it can be verified historically. So, we're not talking about the circle argument here, we're just talking about history. You see, the life, the teachings, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this man, their historical events it means that it's tangible it it, it, did it happen or didn't it happen did pontius pilate live or did he not live did he execute jesus or did he not was the tomb of jesus empty or was it not empty did the people see him after his death or did they not you see you can verify historically and you see this makes christianity quite unique in virtually all the world religions, which are at their core, or many of the other world religions, major religions, they're at their core, their content are unverifiable. Now, that's not to suggest that they're wrong or anything like that, or false. It's just that you can't verify historically. Let me give you two examples. Buddhism, for example, rests entirely on the insights of one man the 6th century BC Indian Prince Siddhartha Gautama. It rests on his sole insight. He discovered enlightenment, wrote down what he learned, wrote down lessons and passed those teachings onto his disciples. But you see, the core of those teachings, the content of those teachings, you can't verify historically. They were private revelation to him, things that he worked out himself. They're purely based on the thought and discovery of that one person. And the reality is that if, if that prince did not discover Buddhism, someone else later on could have discovered it because that philosophy, that worldview would still have been there. And so in one sense the content of Buddhism, you can't verify it. He's not saying that it's wrong or false, it's just that you cannot verify it because they're the private enlightenment, his own teachings that he's passed on, down. We'll take another example. In Islam, for example, it's similar. The core of the teaching of Islam are private, private mystical revelation to this man Muhammad in the 7th century. You see, the core, the content of those teachings in Islam are based really on what this one man was revealed, what he thinks about God, what he thinks about the world, what he thinks about humanity, what he thinks about the prophets, is claimed that it was by revelation. And that's okay. We're not saying it's wrong or false. It's just that you cannot verify those claims. They're private individual revelation. It's not saying it's wrong. It's just that you can't verify it historically. And so you can't critique those religions like you can not critique Christianity. Christianity is a historical religion. These are real events that happen in human history with the core beliefs of Islam or Buddhism, you can't critique it, you can't disprove it, you can't say, Allah did not reveal that to you. You can't say to a Buddhist, no, he did not discover that. You just can't say that. They're private uh, enlightenment, private revelation that they've passed down. And so in those faiths, how you come to believe those faiths is really just to accept the claims of those two guys. But in Christianity, you see, before you believe anything, So, we're not talking about the Bible as the Word of God and so you must believe it. Before you need to believe anything at all, you can critique it historically. You can interrogate it historically. You can scrutinise it historically. You can verify historically or if you disprove the events that they did not happen, disprove the death and the resurrection of Jesus, disprove any of that, even the one event, you throw the whole religion in the bin. You throw it all. It's a waste of time. This big black book, it's a fraud. And that's why the the, the events of Christianity, they're historical and they're verifiable in nature. And that's why John Dixon, he's a theologian, he's a historian as well, he wrote this. Uniquely among the world's religions, the central claims of Christianity concern not just timeless spiritual truths, But tangible historical events at the heart of the Christian faith are things that are meant to have happened in Palestine between 5 BC and AD 30. It's as if Christianity happily places its head on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites anyone who wants to come and to take a swing. Now, Now, do you see what he's trying to say there? You see, the invitation is there for anyone Take a swing at Christianity. Take a swing at the historical claims of Christianity. See if it stands up to the challenge. You can challenge Christianity in that way because it's a historical religion. It's based on historical events. You can't challenge Islam in that way. You can't challenge Buddhism in that way. And that's okay. We're not saying it's false or true. But in Christianity, it has placed its head on the chopping block of public scrutiny. And so, will Christianity lose its head because those claims are all false, because those events did not happen, because they can't be verified? Well, what do you think? Well, I reckon what we can do now is let's try to take a few swings at Christianity. Let's see if we can chop off the head of Christianity. Does it stand up historically? Does it, in fact, stack up historically? Now, when we look at the historical records of the person Jesus Christ, What do we learn about Jesus? Well, you've got sources about Jesus in the Bible, recorded in the Bible, passed down from generation to generation, copies made. But you've also got sources outside the Bible, extra biblical evidence about the person of Jesus. And so when we just look at these sources outside the Bible, not looking into the Bible, looking at the sources outside the Bible, we see from prominent historians of the 1st and 2nd century Three in particular I'll mention. A Jewish historian who did not believe in Jesus, not a Christian, by the name of Josephus. A Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. And then also in the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish religious documents. From these three sources outside the Bible, okay, non-biblical, from those historical records, we can in, in fact almost write up the whole story of jesus his life almost the whole thing what we learn from those extra biblical sources are these we learn where he lived that is jesus we learn where he lived we learn that he was an influential teacher we learn that he was engaged in activ- activities thought to be supernatural and so those claim that he did some miraculous things that he was executed when and by whom that he had a brother called James who was also executed, that people claimed to have seen him raised from the dead. That is sort of like a a pointer towards the resurrection. And number eight, that he was widely known by the prestigious title, the Christ. You see, now this is what you gather from those sources outside the Bible. That's almost the whole life of Jesus. Not the detail, but it gives the shape of the life of Jesus. You see that, not from the Bible. And so, what that should tell us is that if you are objective, if you are unbiased in your historical research, you can't claim any of those things to be false. We know those things to be true, not from the Bible, but we know them to be true. Now, looking at evidence outside the Bible, that is one thing, but we can also consider evidence inside the Bible, the evidence contained in the Gospels, that is the book, of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Four separate accounts about the life of Jesus. Who were they themselves eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses about the life of Jesus? Their historical accounts. Now we'll read Luke in a moment. But what we learn is that we learn a whole lot more about the detail about the life of Jesus, what he did. And it matches it matches those extra biblical sources. Now, of course, Christians have been accused. You see, those authors, they say, were biased. Well, in one sense, you expect them to be somewhat biased. They were the followers. They were the ones who were interested in the life of Jesus. They recorded it down because they wanted everyone to know. But that sort of makes sense. Those who are interested in a person are the ones to record about the person, to write down the history of that person. It's a bit like today. Would you expect um, uh, the scientific discoveries that we find today from our scientists? Do you expect all those wonderful discoveries in journal papers to be written by a ballet dancer? Well, of course not, right? You expect scientists to write their own history. And same thing with uh, music, for example, or lyrics or scores. Who do you expect to write those things down? Well, you expect the musicians to write those things down not your gardener. You see, and so these disciples, they were with Jesus, they knew him and so they wanted those things recorded. So, in a sense, that that argument that it's biased, well, in a sense, it doesn't really stand. And so, in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what we have recorded here and passed down from generation to generation, copied and spread around, are really the biographies of Jesus. Four different accounts. They're not private revelation that someone just discovered and decided to write down, but they're verifiable historical accounts of the teachings of the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, historical events in human history, in our history. And that's why what we read in our second reading, Luke chapter 1. Luke, a physician of the first century, also a historian, He wrote this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. You see, he was like your historians, he was was your serious historian, investigated everything. He goes on to say, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke, one of the Gospel writers, a historian, wrote things down. This was what happened. He interviewed the eyewitnesses. This was the life of Jesus. Now at this stage, if we grant that the Gospels, always saying at the moment, nothing religious, Always saying at the moment is don't, you don't need to believe this yet. Always we're saying is that you don't need to have faith in this yet. Well, we're always saying is that this is a historical account. These are historical documents in the Bible. So if we grant that that this is historical, how then can we know that what we have today is the same as what those first authors authors penned down? How do we know what we have today in our big black books? are reliable and trustworthy. What is recorded in the Bible is reliable. Well, in historical scholarship, this is what your PhD students do, your professors in universities, how they determine the reliability of a historical account or a historical person is they need a few things, but two main things. They need multiplicity. That is, how many of these surviving manuscripts do we actually have? Do we have only a few or do we have a lot? The more you have, the better. It makes sense, right? The more manuscripts you have surviving means that you can cross-check more of these to work out what the true account was. Multiplicity. And the second thing they look for is antiquity. That is, how old is the oldest surviving manuscript? How close is it to the event, the actual event? Now, when we compare the Gospel to any other ancient document, what we find is that there's no comparison in any other ancient document in both multiplicity and antiquity. And so what I'll do now is just compare two significant historical figures. There's a lot more. If you do research, there's so much more information out there. But let me just compare two for you. Jesus Christ in the New Testament, how many manuscripts do we have surviving today? Now, about 24,000. Many of them are fragments, but about 24,000. The oldest surviving manuscript that we have today is only about 40 to 90 years after the original was written. Sounds like a long time, but is in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Well, let's compare this to another guy, Julius Caesar, that we take as fact, a real person uh, uh, around almost contemporary of Jesus, but before Jesus. What do we have on him? Well, with Julius Caesar, the number of manuscripts that we have today is only ten. We take him as fact, we take his wars, his Gallic wars in order as fact, we really only have ten. And the time between the writing and the earliest surviving manuscripts that we have today is about a thousand years after the original. So, do you see that? What we have today for Julius Caesar is about a, almost a thousand years after his life. What we have for Jesus today is about 40 to 90 years after his life. It's much closer to the event and there's far more manuscripts for Jesus than Julius Caesar and you find a common pattern with any other significant historical figure. And that's why one um, important guy, uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, former director and principal librarian of the British Museum, he said this, The interval then between the date of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible. And the last foundation of any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us uh, substantially as they were written has not been removed. But the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as firmly established. So, at this stage we're just saying these are historical accounts. They're reliable, they're trustworthy. We have so many manuscripts, you can cross-check them and they are close, they are old, they are ancient documents close to the actual event. That's all we're saying at the moment. You don't need to believe anything yet. At this stage it's historical, it is reliable, it is trustworthy, the trustworthy account of the life of Jesus. Now that we've established that, now that we've established the historicity of Jesus Christ and what we have in the scriptures, now we begin to assess who this person was, this person Jesus Christ. We can assess him now based on these historical accounts. We can assess him as a person. We can assess him and say whether he is for real or whether he was a fraud. And what we find is that when we assess the claims of Jesus, they are spectacular. No normal human being makes those claims. Jesus Christ walked this earth and he claims to be the son of God who can heal the sick and did it, who can raise the dead and did it, who can forgive sins, exercise the authority of God and did it, who can calm the wind and the waves and did it. Uh, uh, he, He makes some extraordinary claims of himself that he is the son of God. He also claims that the whole Old Testament the laws, the prophets, the psalms. They are all about him and that's an extraordinary claim. He's saying the whole Old Testament, the scriptures, they are fulfilled in him. He makes another claim that he will die and he will come back to life again. Okay, they, They are just historical claims. Now we can assess them. Is he for real or was he a fraud? Well, those claims are historical but the question is what will we make of it? Now, when anyone walks this earth and makes such a claim, that's not an ordinary person, not an ordinary human being. And you can't really say that he was just a good moral teacher. That's how a lot of people like to brand Jesus, just a good moral teacher. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great English author, he he notes that it is nonsense to, to claim that Jesus was just a moral teacher. He said this, He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level With the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Do you see the wonderful argument of C.S. Lewis? You can't just claim he was a great teacher. He doesn't allow for that. Anyone who makes the claims that Jesus did, you can't call him just a great teacher. Either Jesus was, as C.S. Lewis said, a lunatic, a liar, Today people add another one. They say he's probably just legend. So, let's assess that. Was Jesus a lunatic? Was he a lunatic? Now, if if he was a lunatic, he would have been confused about his identity, but you don't see any confusion in the accounts of his life. He functioned in a way that was consistent. He spoke in a way that was consistent, not consistent with lunacy. And no one in history recorded Jesus, even his enemies, did not record him down as acting with lunacy. So, he's not a lunatic. What about the next one? Was he a liar then? Well, When you read the story of Jesus, you notice his moral purity. his dignity, not a hypocrite. He said things and he did things that were consistent with what was right and good. He even predicted things. He predicted that he would raise the dead and he did. He predicted that he would rise from the dead and he claimed that he did as well. Not a liar. What about the third one? Jesus was just a legend. And this is a claim that some some have made against Jesus, that he's just a, a mythical person in history. But you see, the New Testament was written shortly after the life of Jesus and during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. In that short time, it's not enough time for anything to become legend. In fact, you have the eyewitnesses who are around who could verify whether those things happen or not. And more than that, even the non-Christian historians wrote about Jesus that was consistent with the Bible. And so, if Jesus, we're, we're sort of discounting who he can't be. If he's not a lunatic, if he's not a liar, if he's not legend, he only leaves one other option and that is he is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has come to rescue the world. He is who he says he is. He is the Lord. Now, notice something happened there. If you in fact come to accept that point, that Jesus is the Lord, you've moved on to history, now onto the circular logic. You see, once you accept Jesus, you actually come on to affirming the whole of the Bible as well. Jesus claims that the Old Testament was about him. The New Testament is about him. And so, when you come to accept that Jesus is the Lord, then you come to accept the Bible speaks of him as the Lord as well. And so, remember that circle of logic we spoke of at the beginning? To use that first off is a bit difficult. Start with history. You show that these are real, reliable, trustworthy historical accounts. Once you've got that, then you can go about assessing who Jesus is discount what he can't be he's not a lunatic not a liar not legend he only leaves him as lord and when you come to accept him as lord who affirms the bible who speaks of himself as the son of god you actually come to accept the bible as well now you're onto the circular logic why do you believe the bible in a sense you believe the bible because you've assessed jesus you've assessed and seen that he is really the lord And so when you accept that, you accept the Bible as well. And so when that does happen, when you do accept the Bible as the Word of God, that it is something that we must believe and submit to, what you also find there is a lot of other things, are a lot of other things. You find in the Bible really the manual to life. This is how human life was made. This is how humans are to function. And so if our marriages or or uh, raising of children, or how society is built is based on the Bible, it actually works. It makes sense. When you live the way the Bible teaches of, of humility and graciousness and compassion and love and, uh, and humbleness, it actually works. It makes sense of friendship and relationship. What you also find in the Bible is the truth of God, that there is a creator who made us, who loves us. You find in the Bible the truth about life and death, that our life here on earth is not all there is. There is way more after that. And you find in the Bible the hope of salvation, that God in his Son has come to rescue us. You find a lot more. Once you accept Jesus as Lord, you get all that thrown in as well. But you see, in the end, the only way any of you will come to believe the Bible is not dependent on me convincing you. It's not all that logic and all that. The only way that you'll come to be convinced of the Bible and to believe in the Bible is really if you read it for yourself. If you read it for yourself, assess the claims of Jesus, convince yourself either way. If it's true, then you believe it. If it's false, throw it away. Throw the whole Christian faith, the whole Christian religion in the bin. You see, in the end, it's not up to any of us to convince anyone. We can't defend the Bible, in a sense. And that's because the Bible does not need any defending. You see, if it really is the Word of God, the Bible defends itself. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he once said this, and this is really clever, and it makes makes our point clear. He said one time, defend the Bible, I would as soon defend a lion. Unchain it, and it will defend itself. Do you get what he was saying there? In one sense, we don't need to defend the Bible. You read it, and the Bible will make its own defense. The Bible will defend itself. You read the Bible; it's like letting the Bible out, letting the lion out of the cage. The lion can defend itself. And so, if you are a Christian, the best way to convince anyone about the authority of the Bible, why they should believe in the Bible is to read it with someone. Read the Bible with someone. Read the Bible with someone. And that's why in our Christianity Explored course, what we do is that by the end of the course, all the students would have read the Gospel of Mark. They would have been confronted by the person of Jesus. And that's why on campuses, a lot of the evangelism works best when they meet one-on-one and read the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. When the Bible is opened and read the Bible will defend itself and will bring people to faith. But you see, if you don't believe the Bible, that is okay. But if you are game enough, then read it. Read the Bible for yourself. You might come thinking that we will assess the Bible and do that. Come assessing the Bible, assessing the person of Jesus. But if you do it long enough, what will happen is that the Bible will assess you. The Bible will assess your life. The Bible, in fact, expose your life before God. And so let me put that challenge to you. If you're a Christian, read the Bible. Best way to do evangelism. If you're not a Christian, well, read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. Be game enough and tackle this lion. Well, if you do not have the Bible anyway, do come and see me. We do have Bibles to give out. But let me now pray and then we'll answer some questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word recorded down in history for our good, that we might know you, know about life, know about the Lord Jesus who came to be our saviour. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us all to heed what we've heard tonight, to take on the challenge of reading the Bible with others for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been watching all the questions come in to to Ben's phone. All the young ladies asking him to go out for a coffee as well. It's (laughs) been a bit distracting. But we've got a few questions. I've paraphrased a few of them and they're up on the screen here. And the first question is, how can we trust that the 66 Bibles we have in the Bible are the ones God intended to be included? And and why don't we include the, except the Apocrypha? Okay, very good question. Um, So I'll answer the second one first. The uh, um, Apocrypha, they're really uh, books that are about a period between the Old Testament and the New Testament and so in a sense it sits in the, the, the time frame of the Jewish people, the Israelites, what they consider scripture. But the reality is that the Jewish people don't accept that as part of their Old Testament scripture. So if the Jewish people don't accept that even though it was during their sort of period, In a sense, why should we accept it? It was really much later on that the Roman Catholic Church accepted that as part of the canon. Um, So we, in a sense, go with what Jesus affirmed and Jesus didn't affirm that. Um, The first bit, how can we trust the 66 books? Well, in uh, the Old Testament, that was all set um, by the Jewish people was handed down the Old Testament. By the time of Jesus, it was all sort of finalised, complete, And that was what Jesus affirmed when he said, um, he referred to it as the laws, the prophets and the Psalms. So, that's complete. We accept there the revelation God has given to them in their history and that's final by the time of Jesus. Now, with the rest of the New Testament, the four Gospels we've got today, uh, the apostles, um, in the early church they had a few tests. They had a few tests in working out which should be, in a sense, recognised as part of Scripture, as part of the canon. And they had a few tests. They had to be someone who has seen the Lord Jesus um, or very closely related or interacting with one who was with the Lord Jesus, had to be a disciple. So, they had these few tests and it has to be sort of like accepted by the church. That meant that it was distributed early on, close to um, the time it was written, not hundreds of years later, which are the Gnostic Gospels. They came a lot later and they were given pseudonyms. Okay? So they had a few tests and in a sense what the council did when they accepted and recognised which are part of the Bible, they really all they did was merely not make them scripture but accepted and recognised what the church has already accepted as scripture. So they just affirmed what the church has already believed. Okay? Um, so that's an answer there. But then, on the other level, to answer that question, is that if there really is a God, God is providential. He's in charge of what happens in human history. You see, it's in a sense up to God already, you know, what what is included in canon. So, we've got two levels of answers on the human side, on God's side. So, that's that. What do you make of the discrepancies when different accounts of events in the Bible are not the same? Yep, discrepancies. Well, in a sense you have to bring the specifics to me because there are always answers to these things. So, for example, in Mark when he talks about the blind man Bartimaeus, it was just a one man, but then in another Gospel, I can't remember, we're trying to get the Matthew or Luke, there are two blind men. Was it one or was there two? Well, in a sense, how do you merge those discrepancies? There are answers. Perhaps what, what he's saying is that there were two, but one was Bartimaeus and that was the one Mark focused on. So there are always answers, there are always ways where you can actually rationalise it. It does make sense. It is consistent. And so, but to answer that one generally is hard to. Bring a specific and I think we can discuss it. If you've got more questions but you are too shy to ask or your fingers were too slow on the text. John would love to answer those questions and and ask each other questions um, when we finish up. We're going to spend time here and out having supper later on too. But before we finish tonight we're going to sing again, we're going to pray and.